Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Thanks, Gene and Corey, for opening the word for us and bringing us that scripture reading. We're going to continue our service this morning. As we consider the text that was just read for us, I invite you to have a Bible open as we enter God's word this morning. No one ever had more admirers than Jesus. Of all the influential people in history, no one is more universally admired than Jesus. And what you may have noticed if you've been tracking with us in this sermon series is that Jesus says things and does things that are more likely to drive people away than they are to attract them. If Jesus had a PR guy, I'm sure he would just be a ball of stress telling Jesus, no, Jesus, don't say that to these people. You're angering all the wrong people. These people are powerhouses. They're influential and you're totally ticking them off. You see, Jesus had hard words for people. He doesn't just say what people want to hear. He says what they need to hear. His message often upsets the comfort and assumptions of his hearers as he announces the arrival of God's kingdom, of God's reign, that God is taking the world back and all of the implications of God's kingdom. It upsets us. It turns our world upside down. And as we continue today in Luke, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem and he is just surrounded by admirers. He's drawing huge crowds. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says that there are thousands of people even stepping on one another, trying to get to Jesus, maybe hoping for a touch from him or wondering what he's going to do or say next. And, And it's so clear that Jesus isn't really interested in people staying in the crowd. He's not interested in collecting admirers. He has a different goal. He wants disciples. He wants people who are going to follow him with everything they have and live for his kingdom. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Are you an admirer of Jesus or are you a disciple of Jesus? We're going to consider why you need to make the move. Why do you need to move from being an admirer to being a disciple? And then we're going to consider how you do it. Why you need to make the move and how you do it. But first, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter your word this morning, and as we consider what you are saying to us, we want to begin, I want to begin by acknowledging my weakness and our weakness in being able to understand your word and my weakness in being able to unfold and explain and communicate your word. Lord God, we cannot do this apart from you. We need your enabling. We need the illumination of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Glorify Christ in our midst and transform us as we hear the scriptures today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's consider now, why do you need to make the move from being an admirer to being a disciple? Our scene opens with a man asking Jesus 
a question. It's very theoretical, and it's a very statistical question. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? It's a question about ultimate destiny and and how many people are going to get in on the kingdom of God. It's a huge question, but notice how Jesus doesn't answer it. Instead, he says to them, meaning he addresses the entire crowd, and he gives them a command. He says, make every effort to enter the narrow door. Make every effort. Strive to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do so. And then he goes on to tell them a parable. And we're going to camp out in this parable because this parable really tells us why we need to make the move from being an admirer to being a disciple. And and as we camp out in this parable, I want to highlight two truths and one lie. Two truths and one lie from the parable. The first truth is that the door will close. A couple weeks ago, we saw in this series how God is patient, that he is delaying the day of judgment in order to, to extend the time of grace and opportunity for people to turn back and repent and enter into the life that God offers them. That's what God wants. He doesn't want anyone to be left out. But now Jesus makes it clear that this time of grace and opportunity is not going to last forever. A time will come when the door's closed. There is a focus on time in this parable, specifically on the time of the end when there's a finality to our destiny and to uh, the trajectory of the world and of your life where God will judge. I had a terrible experience last summer. I was booked on a flight to Vancouver and I arrived at Pearson Airport, was checking in uh, at the kiosk, and they told me my flight had already left. It was the worst. I couldn't believe it. I had gotten the time of my flight wrong. And then honestly, as I reflected on my day, I wasn't taking it that seriously. I was being careless. I figured, oh, it's a domestic flight. You know, I don't need to get there too early. And I wasn't taking it seriously. The next thing I know, the door's closed. The plane's gone. There's nothing I can do about it. I wasn't taking it seriously. And this parable is a call to us. It's a call to everyone to stop being careless with your life and take the claims of Jesus seriously before the door closes. That's the first truth that this parable brings us. Second truth, evil will be dealt with. There's a small but important detail in verse 27. If you look there, the owner says to those knocking away from me all you evil doers literally evil doers is the word unrighteous and these evil doers in verse 28 uh, we find out that they're on the outside looking in on the party and there's anguish because they've been thrown out now this is a tough one for many of us You know, it's really unpopular to think this way, let alone say anything uh, that even touches close to this kind of uh, closing of the door and of judgment. You know, we wonder, how could a good God ever close the door on people? Isn't his love never supposed to quit? 
Why must God do this? Closing the door is not a vindictive punishment for those who are late. It's not like, okay, you were late and now you're going to get it. You know, this is your punishment. No, God isn't capricious like that. Closing the door is about cutting evil off and separating it. It's about cutting evil off and separating it from God's good world. That's, that's why they can't enter. Because you can't have heaven without closing the door on hell. You just can't. The biblical idea of hell isn't about torturing people in some underground torture chamber. It's about containing evil. It's not about torturing people. It's about containing evil. And yes, it'll be horrible for those who are left on the outside. Why? Because they'll be cut off and separated from the source of all life and goodness and beauty and love, separated from the one for whom they were made. You see, the plan is for heaven to come to earth. And that can't happen until evil is put out and the door is closed. It's because God is good that the door needs to be closed. And not closing the door would mean allowing everything that's wrong with the world to continue. If you want God to redeem the world and deal with injustice without judging evil, you're asking for a contradiction. It's like asking a doctor, hey, hey, doctor, make me well, but you are not allowed to eradicate the disease that's killing me. It's a contradiction. It's just not possible. And let me be clear. People aren't the problem. It's the sin in our lives that is. You see, we've all had a hand in evil. Even as a follower of Jesus, I do wrong every single day. I fall short every single day. We all have unrighteousness that can't enter heaven. And to get in, the sin in me and the sin in you needs to be cut off and eradicated from us. And that's the work of Christ. It's the work of Christ and his cross to deal with our sin. When we put our trust in him, he forgives us our sin. He purifies us from all unrighteousness and he gives us his righteousness, right? Being a Christian doesn't mean you're all of a sudden flawless and, and perfect and you never screw up and you never sin. It means that Jesus's name is on the deed to my life. He's answered for my sin by giving his own life for me. That's what it means. That the righteousness that is going to allow me to enter the kingdom of heaven isn't mine, it's his. It's Christ himself. His own righteousness in me. His name on the deed to my life. First truth is that the door will close. The second truth is that evil needs to be dealt with and will be dealt with. So what's the lie? The lie is illustrated in those who come knocking, and it's common today. These people are under the impression that admiring the owner of the house who represents Jesus, in case you hadn't yet made that connection, there it is. They think that admiring Jesus is enough to get in to the party. 
They say in verse 26, when they're denied entry, they say, we ate and drank with you. We partied with you. You taught in our streets. We've heard you teach. I thought we were pals. Jesus, we we are familiar with you. We're not against you. You're all right in our books. But it's not enough. They're left out. You see, the lie is that because you admire something, you all of a sudden have a relationship to the one you admire. But admiration creates a false sense of connection. I mean, think about celebrities. People admire celebrities and they start to think that they know them, but it's an imaginary relationship. So you've been watching The Last Dance on Netflix and you're getting inside Michael Jordan's story and the glory days of the Chicago Bulls and you start to feel connection. I know Michael, but it's imaginary. I guarantee you, if you show up at Michael Jordan's house and ask him to let you in because you feel this sense of connection, you will be turned away because he doesn't know you. And you don't really know him. It's it's imaginary. And it's possible to do this with Jesus. To, To think that because I admire him, that that establishes a relationship with him. It doesn't. And we see that clearly in this parable. That's the lie. That admiration is enough to get into the kingdom. So, how do you get in? It's all about knowing Christ. It's all about him knowing you and you knowing him. Look at verses 25 and 27. The people on the outside are knocking and the house owner says twice, word for word, I don't know you or where you came from. I don't know you or where you came from. You see, knowing Christ is the all important thing. In your life, just hearing stories and learning about Jesus and taking interest in him, that's great, but you need to come to know him for yourself. You see, it's possible to have grown up in the church to be deeply religious in the sense that that you fill a pew on, on a Sunday morning or maybe every other Sunday. And because you've grown up in a Christian subculture and you've got the Christian language, you can speak Christianese and you're doing all the right things, it's possible to have all of that, the image of a Christian without being an actual disciple. You see, we all need to respond personally to him and his claim that he's the king. And if he is king, if he is really the king of the universe, the one who made me and the one for whom I was made, that he's the the goal and the end of my life, then that means he's master over my life. He's not just someone that I need to admire. He's someone that I need to bow down before. And that's the only way to really know Jesus. Because if he is Lord, then the only way to truly know him is as Lord. If you just know him as a moral teacher or a spiritual guru, then you don't really know Christ. The way into the kingdom is knowing the king and the king knowing you and and to have that relationship with him. You see, Jesus didn't go around telling people to admire him. He told people to follow him. 
He told them to be his disciples. This is a chance, as we hear this text, to honestly consider, have I moved from admiration to discipleship? Have I moved from admiration to discipleship? How are you going to know? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that the difference between an admirer and a disciple is that a disciple strives to be what he admires. A disciple strives to be what he admires. An admirer keeps himself personally detached. He fails to see that what is admired involves a claim upon him, and thus he fails to strive to be what he admires. That's how you can know if you've made the move. Do you merely respect Jesus or do you strive to be like him? We enter by knowing Christ. And what we're getting into when we enter is a life of discipleship. We are called to strive in Christ to be like Christ. We are called to strive in Christ to be like Christ. And now we're coming full circle back to the first thing Jesus said in our text, that command, make every effort, strive to get in. The verb in the Greek is the word agonizomai. Can you hear the English word agonize? Agonize. It means strenuous effort. And it's a present tense verb, which means this isn't just a one-time thing. This is a continuous striving that, that Jesus is calling us to. And this tells us that entering the kingdom of God and being a disciple of Jesus is not the path of least resistance. You don't just stumble into the kingdom by accident. You don't just wake up one morning and go, oh, I'm there. If you become a disciple of Jesus, it will mean work. Striving is part of the Christian life. Now, it's very popular you know, in church today. You hear the phrase that we need to stop striving. We need to stop striving and we need to start resting in Jesus. And striving is often seen as a bad thing by modern Christians. Let me just highlight a distinction here because it can't be that simple. Jesus is telling us to strive so clearly. So here's the distinction. If you are striving to prove your worth or to make God love you, yes, you need to discover the gospel of Jesus, that God already loves you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and you're saved. In that sense, you need to stop striving. But Jesus does command us to strive and to keep striving. And the distinction is you don't strive to get into God's grace. In Christ, you already have it. In Christ, you already have God's grace, and therefore you strive to follow the one who already loves and accepts you. And because of this, striving in Christ is actually joyful, and it's filled with freedom. You've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to prove to God. You've got not, nothing to prove to anyone else. You can run with everything you have, knowing that you're already in the love of God, your Father, that you already have a seat at the table. We, we need to know this, people of God. It's the difference between two kids 
running in a race. The first kid has a father who withholds affirmation and is cold. The kid can never seem to do anything well enough to get his father's approval. And so that kid is running in the race and he's striving, at least in part, to make his father love him. Maybe if I do well, if I place first, then my father is going to love me. But the second kid has a father who loves him unconditionally. No matter what he does, no matter how he places in the race, he knows his father delights in him. And so that boy is striving in the race for the sheer joy of running. So you see, both kids are striving, but they're totally different. They're worlds apart. In Christ, you and I can strive with nothing to prove purely out of love for God and with a passion to bring him glory. That's how I want to strive. That's how I want to run this race for Jesus. So the question remains for you this morning. Are you an admirer or are you a disciple of Jesus? This text calls us to settle the question today, (laughs) now, to give your life to know Christ if you haven't already done so, and to strive in him to become like him. Amen. Are you an admirer? Tony, I think I'm just going to redo that last part. So the question remains, are you an admirer or a disciple of Jesus? This text is is urging us to settle the question today that that if we haven't yet done so, uh, to to give our lives to Jesus, to to, to start to know him, not just as a great teacher uh, or a spiritual guru or an advice giver or a personal assistant to make my goals happen, but to know him as my savior and my Lord, the master of my life. Don't put it off. Settle the question today. And may we, as followers of Jesus, those who are disciples of Jesus, may we strive in Christ, in the power he supplies, uh, according to his righteousness and his goodness and his life working in us, may we strive in Christ to become like him. That's our mission as a church. We want to make disciples. We're not called to fill the pews on Sunday morning. We are called to fill the world with disciples of Jesus Christ Let's continue to do that for ourselves and to invite others into that journey of discipleship together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we have heard your word, I ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us and transform us. Lord, help us to live in an awareness of of the time that the door will close, that you are going to deal with evil and that admiration is not enough, that we need to be your disciples, Lord. Help us, empower us for obedience. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. 
For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.